Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done. Another Britflix.com podcast. My name's Stuart Wright, and today's guest is Colin McCracken. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much indeed, Stuart. It's lovely to be with you this evening. If I introduce you how I understand what you do, and then you can correct me and or fill in the blanks. So I I know you as the host of Gothic Book Club, which I saw through Instagram. Um, and you've also got a substack, sort of going into more detail about that stuff. And for me, as I see you if this is not too bold a thing to put on you, I just see you as a champion of the weird and the eerie in literature. And every time I see one of your videos about a book you're focusing on, I feel like you're one of the best adverts for just books themselves, let alone gothic. You kind of you give you give a life to what the pleasures are of reading that that's really sort of infectious, is how I see what you do. That's amazing. I'm I'm so glad it comes across that way. Uh, because that's definitely how it's intended, and that's very much an accurate and uh, very complimentary introduction. So for that, I thank you very much. Um, yep, I am indeed. Uh, I, I don't know. Is it is, is it book blogger, bookstagrammer? I'm not sure. Either way, I've, I've been sort of enthusiastically uh, talking and writing about culture in different forms for almost 20 years now. Okay. So, so since... You know, since, since the early sort of Netscape days of the internet, you know, <laughs> there was always some form of website or blog or, you know, place that I was contributing to in some way. Um, that kind of took a bit of a backseat the last couple of years, and I really missed it. And I just, for a short period, I started doing little to-camera pieces, very short uh introductions to some of my favorite books and then it turned out i have a lot more books than i thought i did initially <laughs> so those conversations grew um as did the interactions and and through that it's just been a great way to connect and um 
I guess, discover a part of the internet, and this is quite rare today, that is largely positive and supportive, engaged, and open. I mean, there's there, there's 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 drama and stuff, but it's easier to avoid oh, yeah. than in some, I guess, you know, microcosms or, or or ecosystems of fandom. And to me, that's that's equally interesting and entertaining. I have to say. No, I mean, I, I, I mean, one of the reasons I started this podcast was was along those lines. It just felt like a way to network in a way that I couldn't do sat in my office in East London. You know, it it isn't possible to do what yeah. we're doing now just by doing nothing at all, but by creating the artifice of a podcast interview and then a format, you suddenly have a, have a dialogue and suddenly, you know, you, you, you're talking to hundreds of people, which is kind of surreal. That's really nice. It's really nice indeed. Um, I, I, I very much felt the same. I, I suppose between, say, 2006 and I suppose 2017, 2018, I, I was very much involved in... Um, culture journalism, particularly film journalism. Okay. So, you know, sort of similar to that, I would go to a lot of film festivals and meet people and, you know, you'd be doing interviews on the circuit or you would be meeting, you know, just filmmakers or organizers and programmers. And it was just such a way to connect with like-minded, equally passionate folks. And mm. uh, I have to say, I, I, I completely understand the appeal on that side, yeah. you know, especially doing it the way you are in sort of longer form conversations, but with a specific structure. I always really like that. And with that in mind, I feel we should probably segue to some recommendations very yeah, soon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So so to give people a flavor as to what Gothic Book Pub is, and I'll put links in the show notes so people can click on them at their leisure once they've found this podcast. But do you want to run through some key Gothic titles from your point of view? Oh, I'd love to. I'd love to. So, yeah, with the... Um, with the Gothic Book Club, what we're trying to do is open up an area of literature that might seem a little bit oblique to some people. It might seem a little bit academic or impenetrable or a little bit dusty in certain scenarios. But I think for me, um, the Gothic is such a broad ranging sensibility um, that it, it spans much more than what people may initially take it to be. And that's why it's so ultimately engaging for me. It's it's an endlessly fascinating and also that was written in you know the, the 2014 I think or 2013 and or, or sorry 2005 and um, you would find similarities you know between the two spanning yeah. hundreds and hundreds of years but there are tropes and techniques that that you know echo between those ages and so for me that's why Gothic is is such a, a passion of mine and something I love to share and, and speak about with people. So with the Gothic Book Club, um, we started off pretty heavy with some, some sort of fairly expansive titles. And we have some interesting ones coming up in the next year or so. But I thought today, rather than sort of picking things from the specific list, I'd love to talk about just a few of my favorite Gothic novels um, in no particular order. Excellent. Excellent. So, um, I mentioned 1796, and that was no coincidence because uh, that was when Matthew Lewis published The Monk, sometimes known as The Monk, uh, A Romance. Mm. Now, there are a couple of really good cinematic adaptations of this, If um, you know, because I know this is a film podcast, so I, I think that um, 
the majority of the books I've been discussing will have associations with with cinema as well. So um, with The Monk, there's a there's a pretty decent version starring Vincent Cassell. Um, and it's basically about a very popular, like a rock star monk. You know, this, this guy who's going out, he was just delivering sermons and, you know, people are passing out and just absolutely frantic for the way that he uh, spreads the good. But he falls afoul of temptation and the um, the desires of the flesh, shall we say. <laughs> and this leads him into a supernatural tryst. And I, I don't want to give too much away, but it, it's it's very much the archetype of a lot of, you know, sort of Faustian narratives that we've seen over the years that that deal with the devil that that dump into ultimate degradation and to come from such a religious figure it's really well done and you read it now and there are still really shocking uh revelations within the plot there are incredibly visceral and brutal violent elements to it as well like, this is a gorehound's dream oh, if yeah. they take the time to get through the narrative the rewards are there like the the finale of it is still incredibly gruesome you know 250 odd years later and it, i was i was reading that um i mean it feels like uh Todorovsky's, uh Dune that that Louis Buñuel was was trying to make it in 1960 and just I think run out of money I think in the end that's it you know it, it, it's just this this very affecting very um, you know engaging story the origin of the uh, the evil character named Elvira as well so a nice okay. a nice point of note for horror fans too um, so yeah the monk is 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 definitely worth the time it's worth the investment you know okay. and there's some great audiobooks i think simon vance does one of the audiobooks and it's super it's really well delivered and that's something i really recommend to people who are eager to explore um sort of older literature or what they perceive to be more challenging literature grab an audiobook version and, mm. and test the waters with that get used to the language the narrative the flow you know and um if you have to get an audiobook and a hard copy, because then you'll sync them up in your mind and it'll become more of an accessible entity than just this, as I said, sort of dusty or academic uh, blocker that you can't really get past. What are the titles have you got in your, uh, your, your sort of key titles that you'd like to sort of highlight for people? I'm going to jump to 1820 now. And this is a real oddity. Like a, a lot of people know the monk, a lot of, uh, you know, sort of curriculums would cover it. But the next one is by um, an actual man of the cloth uh, named oh. Charles Maturin. Uh, and he was based in Ireland. And uh, he wrote a very salacious, very scandalous, a magnificent horror novel uh, called Melmoth the Wanderer. Oh. And the premise is very simple. Melmoth is a man who is cursed to eternity. And he's in this state of immortality an immense personal torment. And he can relieve himself of this curse and pass it on to somebody else, but they have to agree to do so. So as a result, this SOB just shows up when people are having the worst time of their lives. 
Like literally the plague has hit the house. Everybody's dropping, you know, your daughter's being taken away to a nunnery, all this sort of terrible, terrible stuff. And then Melmoth will sort of knock on the door going, Hey, you know, uh, things are, things are pretty, uh, pretty tough right now. Might have a solution for that. And it's about how all of these different uh, stories come together, but it's, it's fantastic because it's, um, it's not only so well delivered and structured and it's engaging, it's funny, it's violent. Um, but there is also like one huge section of it, which just completely rips off another novel, almost verbatim in parts, you know, like really blatantly. So, and this is brilliant. Like this is, um, you know, this is the, the, the tea from the early 1820s, you know, when everyone, um, you know, in the sort of pre pre celebrity days, but maturin almost word for word, beat for beat, rips off Denise Diderot, the French philosopher and writer's novel, The Nun, for one of the segments, which is uh, about a girl whose uh, father sort of pushes her off to a uh, convent where she's you know fairly brutalized. It's a, it's a very unpleasant, very tragic story. And uh, yeah, Maturin was just was like, yeah, I like that. I'm going to stick it in here, uh, you know, sort of in the in, wow. in, in the center part of the book. Um, obviously, the church didn't respond very well to this because it's it's you know he was a he was obviously out in the west of Ireland in his little vicarage or whatever, and he was a pretty horny dude by what we can gather, you know, from the story. <laughs> so this didn't go down well with the clergy at all. Um, and he was he was removed from his post fairly quickly and and demoted, I believe, um, quite significantly. But Maturin is definitely one to explore. He's one of the lesser known of the Gothic yeah, writers yeah. and a little uncelebrated because I feel I feel his use of narrative and approach is it has been greatly adopted since. Okay, you know, and I could almost say the same for my next author as well. And this is a real oh my gosh. This one blew my mind. Uh, this is a this is a book uh, by a guy called William Hope Hodgson. Uh, it was written in 1908, and it's called The House on the Borderland. Mm. House on the Border. And um, this is just a proto psychedelic masterpiece. Um, Alan Moore wrote a fantastic introduction to a revised edition, which is available through Swan River Press. They're a small independent publishing house in Ireland, and they do great work at unearthing all of these old treasures by Bram Stoker, Sheridan Le Fanu, and they, they, they celebrate a lot of great um, underrepresented writers from history, particularly books written by women uh, over the last 200 years or so. And they're all, all sort of tangentially horror or gothic or uncanny or occult. So mm. um, very, very interesting. Um, avenue to explore. So again, Alan Moore is a big celebrant of uh, this book. And I guess th th there's an Alan Moore seal of approval. Isn't yeah, I mean, H.P. I mean, Love, Lovecraft was a fan. and a, Big fan. And apparently yeah. Terry Pratchett, that was, his, that was his big bang moment into being a fan of sci-fi and fantasy, was reading that book. That is very true. Uh, that is very true. And all like, I mean, well, Lovecraft, can be a bit questionable sometimes, but you can't argue with the fiction. The fiction is great. Um, and, and Pratchett and Moore, that's a that's a good gang to be in, really. Mm. You know, if, if they're coming out and going, yeah, this is it. And you can see why. Um, because it's 
It's set in the west of Ireland, um, in this very desolate part of the west of Ireland, uh, near the Burren. Uh, kind of looks like the moon. Uh, okay. It's got all these like limestone flat surfaces, and it, it, it's a really bizarre place. And I lived literally within walking distance from William Hope Hodgson's house, mm. where this all came together. He he lived in the um in the in the sort of vicarage beside the local church there where his family were sent on a missionary work which basically meant like you know convert the heathen locals <laughs> for want of a better expression uh so they obviously didn't have a great time uh they were they were given a bit of a hard time by the locals and i feel that that influenced the book to a great degree because it's about um it's about this uh this fellow and his friend and they're in this um in this old house in the country in the west of Ireland, they're they're sort of discover this journal, you know, the way all good uh, horror movies start, and they start working their way through this piece of literature, and it basically opens up, conjures up this massively fragmented psychedelic experience with you know crazy pig people and all this sort of stuff. It's it's literally like in those old cartoons when you see someone like opening a castle turret door and just stepping into this like animated um, you know atmosphere it's it's incredibly fun Wait, what do, what do you really... think is what do you think is fueling that sort of um that i mean psychedelia i mean we don't we don't own it as a 20th century word but it feels it feels like something that's born out of pop of modern pop culture not something that the start of the 20th yeah. century Completely. I, I th- and, and it actually, it, because it was 1908, it sort of predates the, the fascination of spiritualism, which mm. would have been like, a, you know, well, well, I guess it crosses over a little bit with it. I think what fueled a lot of novels at that particular time was science okay. and the, the development of science and the, 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 the sort of analysis of the world in a way in which it had not been assessed before because everything was so tied into religion for so long like every worldview or world theory was associated with some sort of dogmatic or religious view and for the first time science was really getting the the the, the sort of kudos and attention it warranted and i think this was fertile ground for writers to just go wild with mm. i mean as you said lovecraft was a big fan particularly the um i think it's called the wreck of the glen carrig um is 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 one of his books um also karnaki the ghost finder is a great one by hodgson okay. you know that, like just a just a really good dude um read into him there's a great passage i don't know if you know the book there's a writer um contemporary english writer called edward parnell okay. who wrote a fantastic book called ghostland um in search of a haunted country cannot recommend this enough it's okay. it's Think of psychogeography mixed with a family memoir and a comprehensive history of all the best horror movies and books you've never heard of. Jesus uh, Absolutely brilliant stuff. Um, the audiobook's great. Um, he's, he's online, he's on Twitter and stuff. He's a super nice guy. Um, I, I used to interact with him a little bit when, when I was still on Twitter. And uh, yeah, highly recommend it. So Ghostland in Search of a Haunted Country by Edward Parnell. And that's where you'll find out a lot more about William Hope Hodgson and how he started a fight with Harry Houdini. And I'll leave, uh, <laughs> I'll leave that as the, uh, as the cliffhanger for that one. Now, you're going you're gonna to take us into the 21st century for your fourth example. I think, I think so. Yeah, I think so. It would be remiss not to mention this book because, you know, if we're, we're going to jump into films that have changed my life, 
uh, and influenced my life in a great way. And I think this is this is the the, the key book that that showed me a whole new aspect to reading. Um, and this is going back. Oh, completely. I think it, it, it originally came out in 2005. I didn't pick up a copy till like 2008, maybe 2009, whenever the, the, the English translation came out. I was going to say, yeah, it's 2004 in Spain, and then it's 2008, the end of 2008 in USA, and then 2009 UK. So I don't That know sounds about right. Late 08, early 09 sounds yeah. about right uh, in terms of picking it up. So I remember I was carrying that brick around for ages. It's a hefty book. It's about 1,100 pages or 1,200 pages. And I don't I don't know if I'd read anything that big before. It scares um, me just by thinking about it. I mean, that's one of the... Yeah, I suppose one way to look at it is it was originally supposed to be five books. Um, so Bolaño wanted to publish these as a series of books. Mm. Um, and then he very tragically passed away at the age of 50, um, 20, 20 years ago last month, I believe. Um, and yeah, just, a, a, a does it real... read that way then? Does it, does it read hey. like five books or do you, does it? Well, so, so I'll mention what the book is, first Sorry. of all. So the, the, the book that we're referring to, yeah, I know we just started diving into the author, but that's, that's, uh, that, that's very easy to do. Uh, so the book is 2666, which, which I refer to as 2666 because he, um, he does talk about it as a year in a different book called Amulet. Um, so 2666 by Roberto Bolaño. And I first heard of this, it was through, um, Chuck Palmer. He used to have a great blog back in the 2000s, uh, the Fight Club author, author yeah, of Haunted Survivor. Um, he used to have a great blog. And, um, I was a, I, I was a miserable, miserable son for most of my twenties. And I remember he posted this blog saying, this is the most depressing book ever written. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line. Prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1 800 Gambler in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of plan investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. 
Hey y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. Sign me up. He's like, it's, it's <laughs> nearly 1,200 pages of misery. I was like, send it, hook it into my veins. Um, so I read it and, you know, I was kind of, I was surprised that no, it wasn't depressing in the way that it had been described. And I think that was a real misnomer. I think that was actually kind of re a reductive way to look at it. What I discovered was a style of literature I'd never encountered before. It was exploratory it was informative it was historical it was academic it was terrifying it was thrilling it was so repetitive and horrific in parts there's one section of a book of one of the books literally just describes murders and bodies being found over and over and over again and it's all to do with the ongoing disappearance and murder of um, women in an area uh, on the borders in Mexico, factory workers, low-income people. And this is really, it, it's an ongoing problem, and it's, it, it's something that's still happening to this day. And the way Bolaño describes it in the novel, it's like reading endless police reports, and it just wears you down in a way that I'd never experienced with literature. And I watched a lot of extreme cinema and stuff as a kid and, you know, as a young man and watched a lot of documentaries and thought I was pretty infallible to this. But this hit me emotionally in a way that very few books have done ever since. And Bolaño was always swimming around in my mind somewhere. And seeing his influence on contemporary Latin American literature, like people like Nona Fernandez or... Um, you know, to to a degree, even um, Mariana Enriquez, both fantastic writers. It's amazing to see, you know, the sort of next generation who are taking like little peppered moments from him. But 2666 by Roberto Bolaño, uh, his more famous novel is The Savage Detectives, um, which I like, but not as much. Okay. Well, look, thank you for sharing that as, and to give the listener an introduction into the Gothic Book Club. Um I will put links in the show notes, like I say, so people can find you on Instagram well, thank and TikTok. You very much. Uh, but let us now move into three films that have impacted everything in your adult life. <laughs> I will quickly just run through the rules just for the for listeners just arrived. Uh, Colin's given me three titles. We'll do each one, and but we won't just talk about them forever. There's, we're going to have a clock ticking on us. We get five minutes per film, and when the alarm goes off, we will. Uh, move on to the next film. It's not. It's not a strict thing, but it's just more of a kind of keeping us in keeping us in check more than anything else. Right then. First off the bat, we've got 1950 Henry Costa with Harvey, starring James Stewart. Do you want to tell us where that fits in and how that impacts on you? I will indeed. And um, even though this is audio, please please know that I'm smiling just at the mention <laughs> of uh, of Harvey, starring James Stewart, and that's why. I think there's there are a few pieces of art or literature or film that you'll experience through your life that you carry with you like a genuine piece of light 
inside. And for me, man, that that's Harvey. I know I know a lot of people's go-to with James Stewart is It's a Wonderful Life. And no shade on It's a Wonderful Life. It's a great film. But for me, there's just something about Elwood P. Dowd. He's such a magnificent protagonist. And for those who haven't seen it, Harvey is the story of a man from a fairly wealthy family who's a little bit of an outcast, a little bit of an outsider. You get the impression that he's had quite a successful life, but it's not worked out quite so well. Um, there's aspects of obviously, you know, mental health issues, of alcoholism, of all of these different things. Um, and he's his best friend, who he's accompanied by, is a giant invisible rabbit by the name of Harvey. And um it's such a sweet film. It really is. As I said, the, the, just the way that those issues are all dealt with is so sensitive and charming. And it's just got such a wonderful central message. And um, I guess for me personally, James Stewart is, yeah, I, I would say one of the people who, I guess, impacted me quite young because you just kind of want to be more like James Stewart and find more people <laughs> like it in the world as well. You know, there's a great quote in the film um, where Elwood P. Dowd says that, um, you know, my, my my mother always used to say Elwood, and she, she, she would always call me Elwood. She said, in this world, you can either be oh so smart and or oh so clever. Or sorry, sorry, oh so smart or oh so pleasant. Um, for years I was smart and I recommend pleasant. <laughs> And I just think that's such a beautiful way to look at life, you know, that um, you can either be right, you can be great, you can be all of these things, or you can just try and be nicer. Mm. And uh, I think for me, that's that, that's a beautiful thing. It's something I think of often. And um, yeah, James Stewart was just such a sweetheart. And I think it's a, it's a perfect rainy day Sunday afternoon. And I think... Um, yeah, I think it's, it's, a film, it's a film that I'd not, I've seen lots of times, but not paid a lot of attention to in terms of yeah. like elements to it. Like I was reading about it today and the idea that the white rabbit is somehow from Celtic folklore blew my yeah. mind. I did, I, yeah. I'd not really, I know he says it in the film, but I, what, what it's called, but I, I never really sort of thought about it that way. It just, you know, it's, it's just the such, it's such an absurd image that, and, and the joke exactly. about he can see it. No one else can see it. Yeah. Is all that I've really, you know, in, in some senses. That's it. It's, the, <laughs> it. it's based on the Irish concept of a puka. Mm. So P-U-C-A in, in Irish, or I think it's spelled P-O-O-K-A, possibly in the, in the film or the script. Um, but yeah, that was it. Like Mary Chase, uh, who wrote the play, um, she, she was well up on that kind of thing. And uh, James Stewart, of course, did the play on Broadway for years as well. well, he did, well like, he did, interestingly, story. he did the play before the film. He did a week when the guy was on holiday. The, main, the guy was playing it was on his vacation. And so for prep, he, he did a week of it. And then 20 years later, he was on Broadway doing it. That's amazing. I would love to have seen that. And, and uh, my other little, little snippet that I found out is that he says, somebody says six foot rabbit, and he says, six foot three and a half let's be you know let's yeah. deal with facts as he says <laughs> and in fact james stewart is six foot four and the rabbit in the film is six foot eight but the line ah. is from the play and they never changed it 
that's amazing. I really like that. <laughs> really, I didn't know that. Thank you for sharing. That's my, my Excellent pleasure. Stuff. So, so yeah, that's Harvey. Um, definitely one to, 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 to dive into. And I think, you know, perfect timing, perfect timing. Right then, moving swiftly along into the 70s for Nick Rogue's masterpiece from 1973, Don't Look Now. Where, where are you seeing this first time? What, what, what's the impact this has on you? I'm seeing this far too young, and the impact is immeasurable. But uh, Don't Look Now is, to me, one of a handful of perfect films, hmm. you know? And, and I think having seen it regularly over the space of like 25 plus years and, yeah. and watching it at different stages from like adolescent, young adult, you know, to someone who's comfortably approaching middle age editions. <laughs> you know, if you watch the, if you watch Don't Look Now as someone who's very young, you're responding to the overtly horrific elements. You're responding to the, 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 the sort of ascending sense of fear that Rogue created within that film. And it's every bit as visually rich as a Suspiria or as a, an Argento film or um, something like that. But he just gets the, the the sort of terrifying bits nailed down so well mm. in a visual sense. Yeah, I think as you get older, you start to connect more with the experience of Donald Sutherland and Julie Christie, you know, because obviously the, the, the fear of losing a child is one of the biggest things that, that any parent would have. Um, I think as you get older and you experience grief and you experience loss and you experience all of those things that, you know, accumulate with our extended yeah, I mean, time it, on, it, on earth. It's a film that really shows you how you can never be prepared for it. And you can be that loving couple yeah. as they are. And, and the idea of a child dying, which is a, a hand grenade into your life, really. Mm -hmm. And, and to show them just going in two different directions. Yeah. And it just basically pulling the love apart, basically, in many ways. Completely. And Rogue goes in hard, like like those opening scenes, mm. which which depicts, you know, I hope we're, we can yes, I think I we can. share a few plot points, you know, without, without, without being too spoiler. Um, you know, obviously, it's about a couple dealing with the loss of their child. And that is shown pretty graphically in the opening mm. opening segment of the film. And there's a there's a, a moment with Donald Sutherland cradling the, the, the body of his daughter. And the, the, the grief is palpable. It's mm. just a masterful performance. And, I mean, Donald Sutherland, you know, just, he always knocks it out of the park. Like, he can turn up in the, the worst Stephen King adaptation and give it, give it, give it some legs, you know? Um, but if you really want to see Donald Sutherland in something else, magnificent if you're a fan of his sort of offbeat stuff from like mash or kelly's heroes or whatever uh definitely check out a film called alex in wonderland um a really offbeat like oh man it's one of my favorites and donald sutherland is 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 just so great in it but that that's for another episode so <laughs> circle back to don't look now for a minute obviously the um story excuse me, uh, was based on a short story that was only released a couple of years beforehand uh, by Daphne du Maurier, mm. who famously wrote Rebecca, you know, Jamaica Inn, The Birds, all of these magnificent um, foundational narrative elements that were taken on by, by these great directors over the years. And I really think Rogue 
connected with that story in a way that very few directors do because he actually elevated it. Mm-hmm. You know, he, he he took the concept, he took the story, and he made something even richer and grander from it. But um, yeah, Don't Look Now is just such a fascinating exploration into grief and one of the earliest, you know, were they actually getting up to what they're getting up to yeah. in some of the more intimate scenes? There was a lot of speculation over that for many years as well. But um, absolutely superb movie, visually beautiful, terrifying, heartbreaking, unforgettable. And I think the way that's impacted my life is that, you know, solidification of needing something enriching and valuable from the culture that I connect with. You know, and that that's really what Don't Look Now does. It it, it sort of addresses a, a richer desire um, for, for, for narrative and visual satisfaction. And I, I love the way that two people can be a believer and a non-believer and almost go in the opposite directions on those fundamentals in their yeah. life through the grief. Like what? And I love that. You know, someone looking for answers will find belief and someone who doesn't understand why they're being punished loses their faith and belief. It's like... I mean, that's such a, yeah, right. It is such a rich telling of a story because, you know, these these are internal things. And to be able to get that across visually in a film is is a really powerful thing to do. And yeah. we're out of time on uh, on Don't Look Now. That's it. That's it. Check it out. It's uh, you, you won't regret it. It's a good one. And for your final choice, we're going to jump into the video nasty era of nineteen eight of nineteen eighty, right smack at the start of it all. And certainly from a British point of view, I don't know was was I was Ireland under under the spell of video nasties in the early eighties? Um, well, we we suffered from very heavy film censorship for a very very long time, uh, right up into the two thousands. Okay, um, you couldn't get Exorcist or Chainsaw Massacre here up until the late nineties. You know, it was fairly heavy on that front. So. Okay, so. There was a period during the 80s when you could get the sort of the the, the wash of horror that came through. Um, but then it, it got really cleaned up and sanitized during the 90s. So very similar to the UK in that yeah. respect. Okay, well, uh, that was me, my long-winded way round of introducing The Boogeyman from 1980, written, produced, and directed by, is it Uli Lamel or Lommel? Uli Lamel. Yeah, Uli Lamel. Uh, and I've chosen this, not because it's the best horror film or even because it's the best video nasty, but it was definitely a film that influenced my life in a big way. Um, so where, where are you seeing this and who are you seeing it with first time round? I first saw, well, I first saw it as part of my, you know, teenage mission to get everything off the DPP video nasties list and yeah. watch them all, not even in succession, but just to get them all. Yeah. Um, I suppose that was, that's what we did before Pokemon, wasn't it? Um, we just, we, we talked to dodgy men with fans about um, acquiring very fuzzy fourth gen VHS rips of uh, unwatchable movies. Um, so yeah, I, I saw it as part of like my, my, my early years were just, it was horror, you know, yeah. uh, from, from kind of the late 80s, early 90s onwards. Um, and I saw it and I didn't think much of it. And then about 10 years ago, I was working, I was writing for a lot of horror magazines. I was working on a couple of, you know, film bits and pieces. Yeah. And somebody got in touch and they basically said, um, oh, we want you to work on a, a, a Boogeyman remake. And I was like, all right. And um, I ended up, working with Uli Lamel for years on a number of projects that never materialized, oh, Tra- traveled the world with him, had a ton of fun, 
and uh, got an insight into what a true... I mean, Uli was a punk rock genius. He was great. Like, he's lambasted for all of these terrible Lionsgate serial killer films that he made. But when you hear the stories behind it, it was like, all oh, right, so that's why it didn't work out, <laughs> you know. Um, but Uli was brilliant, very, very sorely missed. He passed away um, in uh, 2018 and, uh, or sorry, like 2017. Gosh, the years are getting on. Um, but yeah, The Boogeyman is a film with a rich and interesting history. Uh, it's got some great surrealist imagery, um, the, the sort of, the S&M themed killer coming to life in the mirror. Um, it's got like, it's got John Carradine chewing a lot of scenery and uh, the wonderful Susanna Love, who was Uli's uh, wife at the time. Um, Boogeyman 2 warrants a mention as well, because he got given a ton of money to make a follow-up and made a follow-up of basically him and his butler having endless conversations of why they don't want to make Boogeyman 2 and then just cut loads of the first film into it. <laughs> and, yeah, um, yeah, yeah, I believe so. It's, it's um, yeah, it's, it's remarkable. Great fun. Um, but yeah, Uli was a huge um, factor in my life for many, many years, as I said, creatively and uh, professionally. So what, when you say work on it with him, what were you, what were you doing? What, what work was you doing with Uli? Well, we wrote, I wrote a, a remake for him, for mm. starters. Mm. I wrote a subsequent TV show for him. Um, I was on set for most of the, the Boogeyman remake. Went all of the pre-prod stuff with the TV show and a whole lot of other bits and pieces. We were, I think I wrote maybe eight scripts for him over the course of wow. the time we were working to it. So really hammering it out, like. Um, and it was great. It was a magnificent experience. So how, do, the, how do your two ships pass pass each other in the night and, and become collaborators? Oh, well, I was working on a film, which also never materialized. This happens way more often than I oh, initially thought, you know. I know, um, I know. I'm a screenwriter. I know exactly. Oh, right, right. So you know, you know the pain. Yes. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, I was working on a film called The Profane Exhibit. I don't know if it ever came out, but this... This had a whole load of genre directors involved, like Regera Diodato and Nacho wow. and all of these people. I'm not sure if I pronounced his name right. It's 10 years ago. I can't remember all of the details. But this was put together by this, like, I'm, I'm going to say a Walter Mitty figure, <laughs> <laughs> to, be, to be generous. Um, there's a lot of them in the film like, industry. There's, there's quite a number of them. Yeah, I've met, met quite a few. So... Yeah, this guy basically, I'll, I'll keep this brief, um, he was sending me off on all these wild goose chases with projects, and 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 one day he calls me up and says, look, I've got Uli Lamel on the phone, he wants to, uh, he, he needs a script writer, and uh, I thought you'd be a good fit for it. So he put me forward to it, and I wrote him something, I never heard from him for like six months, and I, I wrote back, and I said, hi Uli, did you ever, did you like it? <laughs> you know? <laughs> um, and he was like, like it? We shot it. Come and see. We're in the editing room. And that's how Boogeyman tied in with everything else. So we'll wrap that one up there. Well, look, uh, thank you very much for um, for sharing your, um, your the four books that sort of introduce as an introduction to the Gothic uh, Book Club um, and your three films, uh, Harvey, Don't Look Now, and The Boogeyman. 
and it just gives me to say thank you very much for joining us on the BritFlix podcast. Ah, it's been my pleasure, Stuart. Thank you very much indeed. And uh, yeah, looking forward to uh, to, to listening back in, uh, to future episodes as well. So thanks once again for having me. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line. Or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1 800 Gambler in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.